you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right welcome to this episode of the hybrid cloud forecast podcast series today we have roland persia with us thanks for coming roland glad to be here andre thank you for having me all right as always we'll start out with an introduction you know tell us about kind of your your professional background what you've what you've done how you got to be what you are today you're obviously an IBM fellow you have a long career to look back on and that will then get us into kind of the topic of today's conversation around hybrid cloud All right, quick whirlwind of Roland, I guess. I started in actually financial companies. I worked four years in a company called Chase Mellon, a child company of Chase and Mellon Bank, writing sockets and middleware. And then I spent uh I want to say six months at Merrill Lynch writing financial workflow software. I always work with IBM people. I always got to a point in those companies and I said, "Hey, I don't want to do finance." for the rest of my life if i want to get promoted here or want to do something i'm going to do jobs i don't like i want to do technology and so i got a job at IBM and i started in a group called AIM Services which is basically the start of lab services consulting from software groups to drive a product called WebSphere that's where we kind of met i think Andre back in our history right and you know throughout it i've always led specific areas working with clients so i was like doing WSAD and developer stuff at some point i ended up leading some stuff around Ajax and Web 2.0 and pissing off a bunch of people that were working on Java server faces in IBM saying that everything's going to be Web 2.0 and Ajax that led to me becoming a mobile person and I led some of the work in the field around mobile first bought a company called Worklight that's when I became a DE and then was kind of done a bunch of different jobs from you know helping start something called the Bluemix garage you know like Rachel and Kyle and helping kind of do a new way of consulting in the field and leading the developer side of that and I worked on ICP with clients and always been kind of on the forefront of helping clients adopt and create methodologies around adopting our software and trends and most recently CloudPacks OpenShift Kubernetes etc yeah and for full disclosure Roland and I have known each other for I don't know it's probably decades now not years and worked together and for a long time been kind of on this space between the customer and the the product development team so to speak right on the one hand you know making sure that the stuff that we develop actually works and then also kind of feeding that back into the development team so uh, here's what you need to do to fix it and I think that just basically continues to today right Yeah, 100%. And especially I think we're transforming along with our customers. Like it wasn't that long ago that containers was not a thing, right? And people were doing other things and and now, you know, we keep transforming in the industry with things like cloud and new methodologies. I think it's a good relationship, you know, IBM's commitment I think to driving what the clients need in our products and and trying to match the patterns they're doing as they're evolving. Okay. So that gets us into okay, hybrid cloud today. That's obviously the world that we live in. And another thing I ask basically every guest on the podcast is about their personal definition of hybrid cloud. Basically the elevator speech if you meet someone in the elevator that says, "What's hybrid cloud anyway and why is it important?" then what's your answer? Yeah, so I'm not a terminology guy personally. I always think people kind of debate terminology and they mean the same things and they talk past each other. And I worked in a field in the past with mobile that there was kind of native mobile and hybrid mobile, right? If you remember, do I write a native mobile app in iOS and Android or do I use HTML5 because I want to 
have a common website in the web. When I think about hybrid is I'm doing something in more than one place. I'm either writing applications on-prem and in a cloud. And I want to do something that intersects the two. And that means integration, something in a cloud calling something on-prem. It could be, I want to manage something consistently across the two. I think a lot of work in hybrid is around management and deploying in a consistent way is probably the area I spend the most time working. So I would say hybrid is really solving a day two and management problem around how do I manage things efficiently? How do I build things efficiently between two different areas, whether it's multiple clouds, some people call that multi-cloud, or whether it's on-prem and in the cloud. That's kind of my long-winded answer. Okay. And then though you made an interesting uh, remark there in terms of, because I hear that a lot is like, is it hybrid cloud or is it multi-cloud? And then my instant reaction always is like, what's the difference, right? We're, we're talking about multiple places here, multiple styles. And these days, this even goes beyond, you know, is it my data center or a public cloud provider's data center? It goes into, you know, non-traditional places and, and things can run in all kinds of areas and all kinds of spaces. But the, the hybrid nature really goes in when you try to tie these things together, either by having applications and solution actually talking across those boundaries, or when also another aspect, as you pointed out, is kind of the operational perspective on all of it, right? How now that I have things sprinkled across all these different places, how can I still manage them in a consistent and centralized way? I always like having conversations with you because I always feel we're, we're both kind of grounded people. And I think when I look at those two things, I don't like to get religious around multi-cloud and hybrid cloud because the type of work, the things I'm actually doing are kind of the same. Whether I'm solving a, I need to provision this thing in this place and I need to provision it in that place. I'm either managing two provisioning native scripting things or I'm doing a native, uh, a hybrid technology like Terraform and doing it in two different places, right? Or I'm building a dashboard that's looking at two different things. Like the work is very very similar and the same, and the things I need to do around it are consistent. Okay, let's talk a bit about application development in this con in the context of hybrid cloud. I kind of think of you as the guy who then always comes in and says, we need to write an application that works with all the services that we provide to our customers. And that's obviously when it comes into what are the methodologies, what are the processes, what are the disciplines that we see out there that customers apply today, that enterprises apply to build application in this whole context of hybrid cloud. And then obviously the first term that comes up is DevOps. So maybe tell us a bit about kind of where you, how you see those two linked with each other. Yeah. So I think the center of gravity around building hybrid applications is building pipelines and automating deployment. I think that is where a lot of the work and discipline and and programs need to be built to be successful personally. Developers are, are very religious about technology. So it's hard to tell a developer, thou shalt use this, right? Like governance that's built around thou shouts. Developers are like rivers, right? They're crooked. They take the path of least resistance. If you tell me to do this, I'm going to do that. If you tell me I have to use Terraform, I'm going to use CloudFormation and Ansible. I just feel that people want 
to experiment and build things. And so I think there's a, a huge relationship because I actually believe a hybrid platform is meant to run applications, not necessarily build them. Because I think developers want to build things. So if I can figure out a way to run them consistently and, and run them in a well-architected way and they perform and they're secure, then the work involves how do I take a paradigm and automate it into the platform. And that's why DevOps and I'll add GitOps and all of that come into play because I've had more success letting a developer build whatever they're building locally. And I'll say, you check it into Git, we'll take over from here and make sure the thing you built on your desktop is working in the hybrid environment and is connecting to the services that you need to connect to and is getting the data you need to get and it's being replicated in the way you need to replicate it. And so I think that's the center of gravity is I have an engineering team as you know, that spends a lot of time building pipelines for clients because they're asking us, how do I automate these things? I need to create clusters. How do I automate that? I need to deploy middleware that's shared, a shared database or a shared testing tool or an automation tool. And I need an application. I want to automate that and I want to build it and keep checking because we don't spend a lot of time creating apps, actually. If you think about it, I only create something once. From there, I'm always modifying it. Code, edit, debug, change rule, deploy. Like You spend more time modifying and editing and deploying than you actually do building the initial app. And I think that's why DevOps is so important in a hybrid context, especially if I want consistency of an app in different clouds, or I want to make sure that my cloud app talking to my on-prem app is consistent, or I have two versions of the same apps running in different clouds. I want that. The only way to ensure that is to take control of the pipeline. And that's the source of control. Okay. I want to echo two things you mentioned. One is automation is key, right? So whenever we have a discussion about cloud, it turns into a conversation about automation. And, you know, in a previous episode with Tamar Elam, she actually said that to her, what made cloud the cloud was automation. She said, that's what it's all about. That's what it really goes back to. And I think the same is true then if you try to connect that to an application or a development process overall. Another point you made is this, this notion of doing a handoff, so to speak, right? To say, I can create my application in whatever environment, and then I'm relying on pipelines and tools to bring it to wherever it needs to be, you know, getting back to this whole point of, of being hybrid. So I think the word I'm thinking of is portability, right? Portability is key. And that's something that using an automated tool chain gives us. Yeah, 100%. And portability is one of these religious concerns, right? I have a set of clients where portability is key because they don't want to be locked in. And for specific reasons, like I had someone that said, I want to switch cloud providers because the cloud provider got into the business that they're in, like their cloud provider became their competitor. So, you know, you see that trend, like retailers won't, may not use Amazon because Amazon's the biggest retailer in the world and they're the competitor, right? Like, and so, you know, there was a, a Canadian bank that saw the clouds creating currency as a threat to their credit card business. And so they didn't want to be locked in for that reason. And then you have another group that cares more about efficiency and management. I think the managed ser service aspect of clouds has a natural tension with portability. 
And so pipelines is a good way to automate portable management because what I'm managing is if you look at the cloud, I still author pipeline files like code build and code deploy in Amazon. I author those things. I maintain the pipeline. If I get into a habit of maintaining a portable pipeline, think about the portability of your pipeline. Then I'm not, I, it's not just the application that's a source of lock-in. It's really the automation around the application that's a source of lock-in and the tests that I write around an application that's the source of lock-in. I think application portability is solved except in serverless, but I think application portability is solved in a lot of places. And what locks you in is how do I access managed services? How do I manage pipelines, all the deployment scripts? And that's why I say the center of gravity of success is around automation. Okay. Even though I would also want to echo and emphasize something you said earlier is that it cannot be the one tool that does it all, right? I've been in all these discussions. Like you said, everyone is very opinionated about the tools they love. So I feel like whatever level we can agree on is how to automate things, not necessarily the individual tool that we use. It goes even all the way back to, I remember heated debates about chef versus puppet, for example. And I think in the end, we said it doesn't matter as long as you're doing one of them, you'll get what you want out of this. I wrote a Medium blog around what does it mean to be open? And you're right. As soon as I say use Tecton, I say I have a, I'm a Jenkins shop, I'm a Bitbucket shop, I'm a GitLab shop. I think the key is for that is do those things run anywhere? And so have a strategy for the pipelines themselves, like treat them like an application and make sure that they're portable and that they can run anywhere and that you actually have a pipeline of pipelines, which is what we're doing now. Like, okay, you want to switch the, the build tool? That's fine. You could still automate how that runs. That makes sense. So layering your pipelines. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'd like to go a little deeper into what it means to application architecture in itself, because Another question I get all the time is where people say, is your application cloud native? And cloud native is one of those words also where you can have many interpretations of what that really means, what it entails. How do I build a cloud native application? And the accepted way of achieving that seems to be the use of microservices. And then often we then draw the conclusion to go and say, well, microservices then map into containers, for example, if I use containerized runtimes to host that application. And then we had the conversation recently, and I think you pointed me to an, an old article that you wrote about that microservices still need to be handled with care, I think is what it came down to. Yeah, I did a review a couple years ago of a customer application and they just broke up the application into like 60 microservices and then they were deploying the whole thing as one batch job which kind of to me defeated the whole purpose and then i did a review of another software package i'm like i have 200 pods and i'm like how on earth did you get to 200 pods like in, in the back of my head and i'm like i think people took microservices and they kind of lumped in like standard object-oriented development or something like that, right? And they mixed the two concepts. One of my roles at one point of the garage, like CTO of microservices, and it's supposed to be about how I structure my teams, like a team owning an app and that has that app has its own pipeline. That app is self-sufficient. That team is self-sufficient. It can deploy, it can control its own schedule. And so what determined the seams, the bounded context, of microservices was the how I structured the team or how I needed to scale or how I needed to deploy. And it wasn't, you know, 
I need to cut down to as many pieces as possible to this unmanageable state, which is what I think a lot of customer apps have gotten into. It's like they over-indexed on the micro aspect without remembering the premise was you start with a monolith actually, right? Microservice principle is the first thing you do is build a monolith. And when you need to scale, then you refactor it out. Or when you need to divide the teams and then you factor it out. And, and so that application that had 60 microservices, it determined it could have been six. There were six different things that had different schedules and different scaling aspects. And maybe that's the right layer. And then there's all this stuff around state. I think you and I have dealt with that a lot recently, right? Which is everything is good while it's stateless. But then it's like talks to databases and there's these principles and microservices. Like I get my own database. And what does that actually mean? It's not practical in a lot of terms and efficient. And I think you can over index and everything gets swung to a pendulum completely in one direction. Like some, we have monoliths and we have microservices and somehow there's nothing in between that exists because people kind of over-index on those things. And then mapping all of that into the, the actual runtime environments that we run this in. And in our case, that's Kubernetes and containers, right? And so then there's often a one-to-one mapping is assumed of saying, well, then each microservice gets its own container or in other words, its own pod, right? And that comes with a bit of overhead and that's discussions that we've had lately is to say, is that a, an efficient mapping? Is that a good way of then running and hosting this? Or what is the extra needs in terms of you know resources that I need to actually run all those microservices? And wouldn't that actually suggest that you know fewer microservices is better because I can run them more efficiently? Yeah, I think we're in agreement there. The term microservice, I don't think the principle of having a container per microservice is bad. I think what's bad is what the practices we've evolved into what constitute a microservice, like almost to the point that each Java class, if you remember back in Java, right? Well, imagine deploying each Java class, right? That's, I think, what people have evolved to where like they're trying to build a component model and, and maybe you still segregate your code and your IDE so different developers can work on stuff and you don't need to deploy each of those things in their own pod. I think people have over-indexed and confused good just code modularity with deployment, which is a bad mix. And on top of that, I believe, I guess, one of the premises of microservices is to increase the stability of the system by making the individual services more autonomous, right? At the same time, when you have so many of them, like in this example, 60 of them, that translates into too many moving parts and that basically creates a fragile system then again. And so it's kind of countering one of the, the principles to, to start with. And you hit it right away because people think, well, day two, it's an observability nightmare, but we performance test way before we go into production. And right off the bat, you know, we hit performance issues. And what ends up happening is this troubleshooting nature of it's not me, right? That's like the debugging. Everyone's kind of debugging out my microservice is fast, my microservice is fast. And there's no traceability into these things. And you hit it right away when you start doing any type of performance testing. Like right off the bat, that was the, the when the solution started really, you know, falling apart. It's like, it's like we should do more of that type of testing earlier, if possible. Local performance testing and things like that will kind of iron out. Maybe I shouldn't have divided this thing because we ended up going through a cycle of we broke up the monolith and then we recombined it, right? <laughs> like the opposite of like what a modernization exercise is to end up with like 
10 deployment units, uh, opposite engagement. But it's interesting. It comes back to what you said earlier, right? That's like, what's driving me towards microservices or the definition of how many of them I'll get to begin with. And I think we you started by saying there's an organizational aspect to it, right? That said, what's the scope of control and responsibility? And then there's an operational aspect to it as well. I want to get back to this and you mentioned it briefly, but it's obviously a topic that you and I have talked uh, a lot about lately is GitOps, right? So I, I want to touch on that a little bit. So first of all, maybe you can just give us another one of those elevator speeches on, okay, what what is GitOps anyway? Yeah. And then with all of these terms as a marketing aspect and uh, an exaggeration of it, the way I describe it is the source of truth for your application is Git. That's normal CI, CD, DevOps, right? So developers, the source of truth is, is I, I check in code and a pipeline automatically deploys my application. Anytime I change it, I change code, it deploys it. Now that with Kubernetes and cloud, everything is programmable, right? You know, you configure services and deployments and it's all done with YAML and you configure network rules and uh, how many namespaces I have. I need to automate, you know, the full stack, the creation of infrastructure. I can automate VMs. I can automate an Amazon a security group. I can automate a Azure management node. I can do whatever, right, with code. And so GitOps is really applying that DevOps pattern to everything. Everything is code. And the source of truth is maintained in Git. And I no longer make changes to the systems. And so if I go into a Kubernetes cluster and I try to update a deployment, something is going to detect that that deployment is out of state and some type of automation is going to put it back in state or notify me that you you have drift. So it's kind of automatically applying those changes the same way I would automatically deploy everything right in the system. So to me, GitOps is everything is maintained as much as possible in Git and Git is the source of truth and only automation updates the state of a system. An important thing you mentioned there is, and that's something that I uh, talk about a lot is that don't think of GitOps as a one-way street, right? As just the initial, I'm going to install and deploy something and then leave it alone. There is this notion of desired target state management, right? That basically says, if something in the environment changes, I might want to correct it or reconcile it. If I want to change in the environment, I don't go into the environment. So I always say like, you never log into the console anymore. You always make a change on the abstraction, so to speak, in form of a YAML file or whatever it might be in Git. And then the change is actually triggered through things like PRs and so forth, right? So you're taking this whole, like, let's use Git as the ultimate source of truth to the extreme. That's right. And a lot of discipline me and my team are kind of building out is a layered approach to it, right? So how do I maintain infrastructure and clusters and, and network policies and things that cloud administrators care about? And then there's this kind of shared services, databases, development tools, scanning tools, operators comes into play, Kubernetes operators and CR and shared services, then I have applications. And so a lot of the design elements are how do I structure my Git? And then using the power of Git to do things like you said, pull request, do I have permission? Because a lot of the, the nice things about Git is you get versioning for free and branching for free. And you can create seven different cluster configurations. Uh, I could have a standard configuration of my stack for dev and another one for test and another one for staging. I can have differences. I can use branching. I can use pull requests to protect the 
branches. So it's almost the same discipline developers give to their apps being applied to everything and using the power of Git as well. And as you said, it's an in thing right now to go around and say, we're doing GitOps, but what's the reality that you see out there as you're working with various IT shops across the world? Is it still in its infancy or is it already well established? Yeah, I think that there's still a long way to go in the infrastructure tiers. Since I had a developer background, as we kind of established earlier, right? Things like checking in code, doing pull requests, using the Git command line, like something as basic as that, that's natural to developer. is actually not that natural to, you know, people that had Jackal, Jython script, Bash scripts in their local drive in a, in a shared directory, and they run these things, right? So I think teaching administrators, and that's kind of the whole SRE kind of discipline, but teaching administrators, traditional administrators, how to act like developers, I think needs some upskilling. Because so what we're seeing is, is GitOps moving down the stack, meaning, okay, developers do it and they, they add Kubernetes stuff to their deployments like services, and deployments, and ingress controllers for their apps. And next is the shared services, right? The things like operators and before you just have things like Helm that are still there and still use and customize like how I do packaging and shared services and namespaces that's maturing. And that's where we see a lot of people starting to adopt. I think the last layer, right, you still see a mix of people doing Terraform, Ansible, even Chef and Puppet and scripting and using tools like Rackham or Ansible Tower and things like that to manage things in a GUI way because administrators are, I don't think, are fully there yet acting as developers. Okay, that makes sense. We are slowly running out of time here. It's as always, time flies when you're having fun. And, and usually in towards the end of the conversation, I ask about kind of what is it, what's really stuff that excites you right now? What gets you out of bed in the morning that you can't wait to get to? And and maybe even that the answer is I want to watch a baseball game or something. <laughs> but um, I think because I think you're into baseball, right? You live in New Jersey, was it? Yeah, but my Yankees are gone. So this American League Championship Series between the, I think it's the Red Sox and the Astros is is a nightmare because the Yankees hate both of them. But uh, I have to cheer for the Red Sox to lose. Okay. Because that's that's probably what I care the most that the Red Sox lose. But I do think from a work context, all the work we're doing around GitOps is really exciting. I have a very cool engineering team, cool folks like Noel, Hollis, Carlos, Dave Mully, and Hemankita, and Jesus, and Chechu, and sorry if I forgot anyone, but the whole team there building automation across different clouds. What does it mean to do managed Kubernetes versus unmanaged, automating air-gapped, and automating operators and CRs, and building a whole program around it, making it available to the field with Tech Zone. I think I've shared some work we're doing around being able to have our field go out, go to our clients, show them GitOps in action. So we we just did a, a session with a client on Friday and they sent me an email, your team went into beast mode. And that gets me excited because we kind of just showed them in action an application being deployed to Amazon and another one to IBM Cloud. And we showed them a GitOps pipeline. We made changes of the configuration and applied to both clusters. Like this is really exciting. And the customer was really excited. And then it led to the next kind of let's work together and build your strategy. And that's what's exciting me, right? Is getting hands-on, building out these automations, and then showing it to people. All right, very cool. Okay, with that, um, let's wrap it up. Thank you very much for coming. This was this was a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Andre. Always a pleasure. All right. All right. So that wraps up today's episode. Thank you all for listening in and I hope to see you all soon.